Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? Good. We have a sponsored episode today by Warner Brothers Discovery. It's going to be an exciting one and a topic near and dear to my heart, content recommendation. Um, I think this is something that, you know, all of us live every day. We're constantly served up suggestions for the next thing to read or listen to or watch. Um, but how it works behind the curtain is a bit of a mystery, huh? That's right. Yeah. Let's get the great and powerful laws out of here. <laughs> exactly. All right. So without further ado, I'd like to invite on our two guests, Somia and Srikant. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Thank you Thank for you. having us here. So we'd like to kick things off here uh, to the degree that you're comfortable dating yourself. Uh, Somia, why don't you go first? Tell us a little bit about how you uh, fell in love with computers and technology. You know, what was the first thing you did coding on and, and how did that sort of take you to where you are today? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Somia. And uh, how I got into computer science was um, we had an Atari computer at home. So I'm definitely dating myself. <laughs> and uh, you could play Pac-Man on it with the joysticks that used to be there. Um, and I used to play a lot of Pac-Man. And one day I found this basic cartridge for basic programming language, and it was just lying around. Nobody was using it. So I plugged it in, loaded it up, and before I knew it, I was writing code, and the computer was kind of like talking back. You could make it do things <laughs> like simple math, like right. 7 plus 2, and it'll tell you 9. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so cool. So I don't think I even realized I was programming or what programming was, and I kind of walked into it and uh, really, really enjoyed it. And I think I was very much a logical thinker. So things like flowcharts and uh, back in the day, just kind of piecing together different sequences of steps and programming more and more complex things um, seemed extremely intuitive for mm. me. And uh, it was just magical to get this thing, this box that was playing Pac-Man to do things for me. Right. Um, so that was my journey. Uh, that was my start. And um, many years later, I took uh, logo programming in high school. And again, what was fascinating was using that to do some drawings. You know, I drew a profile picture of Mahatma Gandhi, who was, uh, you know, the freedom fighter of India. And it came out so much nicer than myself drawing it on paper. So it was always really, really fascinating for me that you could produce things and create things. And that creative aspect is what kept me going. I did computer science and undergraduate at Mount Holyoke College, um, which is a liberal arts college. And again, there that intersection of technology and applied is what was fascinating, whether it was programming a robot for obstacle detection or uh, we used assembly language and I made a piano with all the features that I wish a real piano had <laughs> uh, because I'm not a musician, make mistakes. I really wanted to be able to delete back and restart from where right. I was correct. So one thing led to the next. I got into database systems as an intern at Microsoft, uh, worked on Microsoft Access and SQL Server um, 
went to grad school at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, joined Oracle for databases, large-scale database systems, um, decided I want to move into more consumer-oriented things, so went to Google. So I was at Oracle eight years, Google 15 years, and had a lot of fun, and recently joined uh, Discovery and now Warner Brother Discovery. Terrific. That's an awesome history. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you say that really rings true when we ask people that question, a lot of times what takes them into the world of programming is something that to them just seems fun or evokes mm-hmm. their curiosity. Not, I, I felt I needed to learn programming so I could have a successful career. You know, that's um, not often how people sort of get pulled into the space. So very cool to hear. Srikant, how about yourself? Yeah, so I, I fall in the category you <laughs> just spoke about <laughs> because uh-huh. I, I was not as a cool kid like Soumya. <laughs> so I got introduced to computers mostly from the gaming. Uh, yeah. So at, at one point, I also kind of believed that uh, computers are meant for gaming. <laughs> so it's better I than the that. that's video true. games, that's right? True. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got introduced to computer. But uh, like most of the Indian kids, when I uh, started looking at, I mean, I started my engineering, that's when I got to know that what are the amazing things we can do with computers. Like, you know, that's when my curiosity kind of started triggering. Oh yeah, and gaming are good, but how they are developed, how they are done, how they are coded, like what happens behind the scenes, what kind of hardware, right? What kind of software, how they come together, how the fascinating things happen within a small box. So that's when it triggered my uh, interest in the computer science. And I did my undergrad in my computer science too. Um, so it was more of an, uh, breadth of coverages of different topics right uh, algorithms data structures databases uh, those stuff then uh, i started working with the fine tech industry uh, as my first career after my undergrad there i spent a lot of time on you can call it as like a you know, black unix screen where i spent time in shell scripting and databases and fine tuning c c plus plus code um, of course, the financial industry has legacy code where I got introduced to the basics of computers more than my undergrad studies. That's where I learned like, oh, this is the applied where we learned and here I can apply my skills, right? That's why I learned. Uh, but soon I realized that I need to study more and I need to understand more. That's when I came here for my master's and mm-hmm. where I spent a lot of time in uh, data explorations, um, maybe a uh, subdivision of databases. Uh, you can call it as a uh, lot of time spent in um, uh, data exploration courses. And I did my thesis in data mining and the machine learning. Um, and the machine le- that's when I got introduced to a lot of machine learning and the AI sides of, sides of it. However, there was another interesting field going on in the industry that time. It was a cloud engineering. So I started exploring more on the cloud engineering side, even though I had a formal degree and studied in uh, machine learning and AI. Um, like after spending some years in the cloud engineering, the time came where I started realizing the potential and intersection of these two things, right? So engineering, ML and AI, how do you combine these things and uh, build a product for the company? Um, so that's when I started working uh, more on the science as well as the MLAI engineering systems point of view. Uh, spent some time there. 
that has helped me to grow my career and curiosity. And at this point, I feel even though after this career, I don't know anything because there is so much to learn outside. Uh, there is so many, much of industry and so much of domain knowledge. So I think um, we should continue investing in that direction. I still feel like, you know, I should do my undergrad again because there is so much things <laughs> I did not learn when I was there in the school. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Um, Ryan, I'm going to let you dive in after this, but I guess the question I'll ask to both of you um, and whoever wants to take it, you mentioned, yeah, you know, sort of your introduction and then both of you, it sounded like had a bunch of time in database moving to cloud. Today, we're going to talk a bit about sort of AI ML and recommendations. So what's the toolkit that you're using today on the AI ML side? Um, and to what degree did the experiences you had in the past sort of prepare you for those? So, yeah, uh, in terms of the toolings, uh, you can say that right now, um, when I graduated, there are not many tools were available for ML and AI. It used to be more of, you know, uh, modeling these things in the Python or R, that kind of languages, but the real-time systems used to run on C++ and Java kind of programming languages. Uh, but at this point, we use, uh, there are so many frameworks like PyTorch, TensorFlow, um, uh, and in terms of algorithm choices, there are multiple algorithms. Like you can use like a lot of traditional algorithms. In addition to that, uh, the deep learning has been uh, area where which has been tremendously changed a lot. Not just from the algorithm side of it, even it's from the computational point of view. At one point, we had these algorithms, but the systems and the capabilities or the uh, uh, the infrastructures were not supporting those things. But today we can do like you know parallel processing, compute them, and train models in in like you know the minutes of seconds or like you know we can serve them in a seconds. Like you can see the autonomous cars, right? When you're driving, looking at surroundings, those can make inference and the predictions in sub-milliseconds, right? So that kind of a computations and those things have arrived. That has helped us into the current stage. Uh, coming back to the question, very specific to what kind of tools we use. Uh, at Discovery, uh, so we are uh, mostly uh, AWS shop. Uh, we started our journey through a lot of AWS services like AWS Personalize. Um, then we started using some of the SageMaker uh, tools uh, for the model training and the pipeline purposes. Uh, but the, in the long term, the vision is we also started looking at building our own uh, custom models uh, for the serving, not just using the enterprise tools. And those custom models are on par with the industry-wide. Like if, we, if I had to put my custom models against the AWS Personalize, they are performing as good as, in, in some aspects, they are performing better than them. So we have built such tools on TensorFlow today, and we are looking at building these machine learning pipelines end-to-end, uh, which can serve most of our use cases, not using the generic frameworks. Um, we are also looking at some technologies like uh, Feast for the feature store, uh, we are looking for some of the inference engines, uh, something like Kser with the Seldon code, that kind of a thing. Uh, we are also looking at MLflow kind of an architectures for manage the experimentations and deploy the models. Uh, there are a lot of open source technologies and enterprise tools. Uh, we don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel again, but combining these two together, we can build our own solutions, which is meant to solve the use cases for our company. Right. 
I would just add to this um, that in terms of tooling and infrastructure, as Srikant said, the industry has come a really long way. So the bar for using machine learning has been lowered so much over the last like 10 plus years because of all the open source framework and technology that's out there and out of box algorithms that you can leverage, right? So we use AWS Personalize a lot. And for getting started, that works really, really good to solve problems like how do I do my homepage recommendation? At the same time, if you want to go into it deeper, have a more richer uh, training data set, if you want to have a richer evaluation framework, if you want to have more of a faster turnaround time and more control over what are the learning techniques and algorithms that you want to use. Mm-hmm. And you also can build further from there and say, hey, like, how do I build my own ML infrastructure for my company or my stack? And what are things like TensorFlow and others that I could use to bootstrap and then build from? So I think it's really getting to a place where bootstrapping and getting going is much, much simpler than it was years ago. Right. And then you can add to it more um, richer semantics. Mm. That's interesting to talk about how it's it's much easier to get started with uh, an ML project. But once you get started, what's what then is the sort of hard problem to solve? I think there are a few. One is, and this is something as I stepped in into discovery and Srikanth and I and a few others have discussed, I, evaluation, side-by-side evals, how do you evaluate whether a model is doing what you want it to do? Mm-hmm. And how do you measure quantifiably um, that the model is, the improvements you're doing are resulting in the changes and metric gains that you're looking for? That is something that is still not out of of the box available. And so that's one of the challenges um, for you to figure out for your business needs, your user needs, for the metrics that you are trying to improve, how do you continue to evaluate and iterate? So Mm. that's one. The second is the feature extraction or the metadata extraction and signals that you're using to inform your models and train your models. And again, uh, you know, we are barely scratching the surface in the work that we're doing today. We're using kind of rich metadata that we have, we're getting with our assets. And is there more that we could be doing? Could we be having better video understanding? Um, And does it really make a big difference or not? Um, If you want to add in, uh, you know, we've been experimenting with CoWatch and metrics around that and signals from that. How do you meaningfully have high quality data and metrics that you're gathering that can funnel back into your pipeline? Um, Because many times I think for a company that's not like a Google, the underlying metrics and data don't exist or the quality of the data doesn't exist. So you need to fix those problems first before you can apply machine learning effectively. Mm, Interesting. And, and another perspective here is um, it's what I mean. One one angle, yes. I mean, whatever Sam, uh, Samyam was telling is a true. But many of the machine learning use cases, even though these tools are available, the open source tools are available today, 
you like write two lines of code in TensorFlow, your model will be ready uh, to deploy. But when you hit the real-time scenario, when you hit the business use cases, when you want to productionize that, it's a lot more than that and much more than that. Because uh, there is, when you say something needs to be put in production and you want to put it in front of your customer, they need to go through number of checklists, like in terms of operational availability, in terms of maintainability, in terms of scaling, in terms of all those things, how to work. So none of those things will be taught or told when these frameworks are built. So we have to take them, we had to kind of build it based on our use cases. That's something every company has to do on their own. And there is no such tool or nobody will be kind of telling us like how to do that. Uh, so that's a very critical part of it. There's a, there was a Google article uh, which basically published uh, on the same thing too. ML code is like very a small piece of the bigger puzzle, right? Uh, there is always the features, the metadata, data, I think some attached on the data a little bit, right? So a lot of <laughs> tutorials you go through, data is given to you, data is already created for you, but in real time, data with high quality never exists. You always right. need to kind of fight around it and get the data for your models and train those models. That's where people spend a lot of time, not in the training or not during the models. Right. So. I would love to hear an example, you know, from the time that the two of you have been working together or, you know, applying yourself to this project over the last year or two, what were some sort of eureka moments that were exciting? Like, okay, now we understand, you know, how best to refine this data to get the best result. Or, you know, as you pointed out, you know, we're applying this to co-watching or repeat watching or binge watching. Now we really understand where we can have a great signal. And, you know, then from there, how the system um, can improve people's experience with, you know, the app that they're using. I can talk one one use case. Some I might have more too. Uh, so one, one of the use cases, like, for example, um, we were using some features like, you know, the watch start and watch complete for every episode, right? So that were one of the signals we started using. Uh, we wanted to use more features like percentage watched, how much of the time, uh, each episode or each content is washed as a signal for the machine learning algorithms. Straightforward, right? If we have that signal, yeah, today I can train the model and deploy it. It's, it's like, it should be a less than a week or maybe less than uh, a day kind of and work. But however, the challenging part was, how does we can get this data from the UI back to us? How we can process that data? And also the signals like, when you say percentage watch, that needs to be computed from the data and aggregation systems from the uh, backend. How do we do that? And that was not easy. And that was, I mean, it was not set up to be in a consumable format. Even though if you are consuming, we want to do kind of real-time recommendations. For example, if somebody goes to um, Discovery Plus or HBO Max site, you do some interaction, you watch some content, right? So that content needs to flow back and we build our features and we need to give you new recommendation based on what kind of interactions you're doing on the site, right? So that has to be near real time. So we don't uh, serve the stale content on the website. So when you want it real time, that data needs to be aggregated and passed into the backend system. That ability was not there. So 
along with working for our algorithms we also need to kind of work with the partner teams like a data team we spoke to them we said like how we can get that aggregates and how we can process it it's like you know kind of terabytes and petabytes of data processed on day to day basis because it's coming on the event streams right so how do you process them how do you do that that was the biggest challenging thing we faced but at this point we got that data and we kind of tuned into the model and we are running multiple experiments now how much of percentage watched really means somebody liked the content or somebody not, did not like the content and so that we can make the recommendations based on that so that was one uh, recent use case i can talk about yeah thank you that was interesting so did you want to weigh in on that i can just add one more and i think at and and without giving too much details and another aha or eureka moment was as a company we are shifting from being very editorial and human heavy to be more machine heavy right and in the process mistakes that you make with the algorithm are costly because when you're making that culture shift happen anytime your model or some change you roll out doesn't quite deliver as you expected which is going to happen you lose credibility in the fact that can the machine really do this and so you very quickly you tend to fall back to the human side and this has been really interesting to watch and balance particularly coming from a very technology com- focused company where you start with the technology first and then you have to convince people why you need the human on top of it that was google and youtube versus here you're doing the complete opposite which is you're starting with a very manual human heavy process and now you're saying hey what more could we be doing here and what is that 10x 100x gains that we can get by leaning more into machine learning or um, automation so that less specific about the models themselves but more of a shift that you have to do as when you're going through that technology transformation it's interesting um i'm curious if if y'all would be willing to talk a little more about how machine learning can can recommend content you know as a consumer i get recommended content all the time and i've heard it done through you know sort of nearest neighbor algorithms where they find other users like you um and then spotify doing stuff with their echo nest api where they actually understand the content in some way like do you have a mix of that do you rely on individual users do you you know, apply some of the sort of human uh, tagging to it? So um, I can talk a little bit about it. Uh, so, so end of day, uh, when you want to provide a recommendation, it's basically based on the patterns, like how users spend time on the site and what kind of things they like to do and not like to do. We understand that pattern. And based on that, we can recommend something to the user, right? Uh, one of the thing is uh, you can say that based on the history we can recommend something like for example uh, Shrikant watches these kind of shows and usually has affinity towards these kind of shows let's recommend him these kind of shows and that's a general idea um, since you spoke about couple of <laughs> nearest neighbor algorithms uh, we use uh, deep learning algorithms which are uh, basically uh, sequence based models so what we uh, do is we capture uh, user history what they are interested in and what kind of interactions they have made uh, i just spoke about uh, time watched was one of the feature we see right how much they watch uh, what they pick where they spend time so once we understand that 
then we make a recommendation based on what is the probability that these are shows watched in the past what is the probability that given a show they watch it or not so we calculate those probabilities and rank them in order and serve it to the customer um, and this is more of an recommendations point of view and then there are a lot of other areas where we have navigational content right basically uh, the genre on the home page will be kind of customized based on every user because there are we based on our studies we found out that there are like you know five or six genres where usually people stick to and if that genre is like you know on the second page usually they have to navigate and come back so we want to avoid them so content discovery is another big piece here right so how we can help them how we can help them into navigate better so that we personalize those things and say that okay so you are going to watch you are a science a science and fiction genre guy so let me and you watch most of the content from that let me put it on the first place so that you can always find it on the immediately when you land in the site and that is personalized to each user uh, the goal here is to make our customers life easy and make it simpler for to use the app so that they can find the content they want to watch very easily so that's a goal uh, to provide these recommendations. Very cool. And the one other thing maybe I would add to this, coming from like having done like YouTube music recommendations and kids rec- YouTube kids, uh, I was leading those projects before. Um, and one of the things I think we really want to make sure, and I don't think anyone has really cracked this in the industry, and that's what's so exciting and is the opportunity here. We're... From the get-go, some of the design principles we are using in our algorithms and what we are monitoring is we want to ensure there's content diversity in the recommendation that is delightful for the user. So it's not diversity for the sake of diversity, but to add to what the user is already stating as their intent and preference through their watch patterns. What are signals that we can infer where maybe some adjacent content might also be interesting to this user and not take them too far off while also introducing them to a richer uh, candidate pool of content? And I think that is something when, when you observe what editors do, humans do, they form that web of connection not because the metadata is telling you this, not because there's like an action scene here and an action scene there. There is something more that a human is bringing to the table in connecting the dots. And, you know, I think Pandora had explored this model for music, right? Where they had um, uh, humans looking through the connections and patterns and the fabric of what is connecting these different pieces of music together? And then how do you bring it into the recommendation? So this is something we're definitely very actively exploring, which is what are the ways in which we infer signals that allow you to create a web that's richer than, in a way, one-dimensional view that you get when you look at metadata or extract things from the content itself. Yeah, I'm glad you make that point. I One of my favorite stories I ever wrote as a journalist was about. Um, Discover Weekly on Spotify. And the data they use there is playlists created by people. And then someone made a playlist similar to you, but it has one song you didn't include. Well, sort of like human taste is kind of the raw material that, you know, the algorithm then can then do some pattern matching on. And I've 
I've always loved the recommendations from that. I guess another thing I wanted to say there was, you know, trust and safety are such an important part of recommendation algorithms. And you make a good point that like, you don't want to just take people down a wormhole because they happen to watch one video. You want to have some, you know, also human in the loop who's understanding why things might be interesting or appropriate for who you're recommending it to. Yes, absolutely. So I just wanted to, um, yeah, ask one last question. When you're thinking about hiring and retaining technical talent now, which is, as we all know, extremely competitive, um, what are the things that, you know, attract great AI ML folks? Um, I know in this space, you know, being able to sort of share your work or work on things that are open in some way is interesting, being able to break new ground um, or being able to, yeah, like, you know, work on really difficult challenges. So, you know, as, as engineering leaders within this organization, how do you think about that? For me, the formula is not that different from in a less competitive market. I think it's really, really for me, for me, the passion and the mission-driven nature of uh, the work is, I think, really important. Um, and so, when we look for whether we are hiring or retention, it's leaning into the vision and the opportunity of how we can impact users, how we can impact the future of streaming and consumption uh, are at the core and heart of how you motivate both your team that is here mm -hmm. and how do you attract that talent that wants to come and solve that problem. So very much um, lean into the passion and the mission um, uh, and eagerness to solve that problem. Um, the second thing is technology transformation can be hard. It is also extremely empowering for engineers, for technologists, where it's easier sometimes to solve these problems when you're in a tech company, because mm. that is the DNA of the company. That's the DNA of everyone around you. Right. Coming here and taking an infrastructure that may not have been built with some of this in mind and really going and having that moonshot vision and saying, what am I going to do to get there? And I don't have 10 years. I don't have 10 years to catch up with Netflix or, you know, anyone else. Right. I, I don't have the luxury of time in a company like this. And what am I going to do almost like a startup to solve these problems with the experience that I have seen before as an individual to come up with a creative way of approaching it? Right. And in an efficient way. So I think that is extremely fulfilling for engineers, uh, particularly experienced engineers, and also for incoming college graduates who are looking for um, that greenfield opportunity uh, and can have that kind of impact and scale. Even our interns have that. Right. You know? No, I think you make a good point. It's exciting to be working in um, the underdog position, you know, to have that feeling and also, as you said, mission-driven and to want to catch up to players and the tech space might be ahead. I guess also if they get to see the stuff that comes out on HBO before I get to see it, that would be really appealing. Do they get sneak previews? No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm still waiting for my dog food access <laughs> for HBO. I'm waiting for that too. That's my driver to be here. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate it. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. 
Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you heard, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I'm the editor of the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog, uh, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Salmia Subramanian, EVP of Engineering at Warner Brothers Discovery, leading our uh, streaming platform efforts. And you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, and I will try to keep up. Hi, I'm Srikant Desai, I'm Director of Engineering. Uh, I manage most of recommendation and personalization at Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, please reach me out if you have any questions. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.